0: Go ahead and turn in the word of the Lord to the gospel of Luke in the New Testament. To Luke chapter 16. This evening we're picking up and continuing a series looking at the parables of Jesus. These spiritual stories that he is often most remembered for in terms of his teaching ministry. And tonight we come to a parable which has puzzled many. Maybe it has puzzled you and I would confess that part of my interest in choosing this one from among over 20 different parables in the New Testament was that it is one which I wrestled with for quite a while, wondering what does that mean? But I think I wrestled with it in not the best way. I would read it as I was moving through Luke and then I'd note in my mental file I don't know what that's talking about I just move on and hope someday I would have better understanding and when that happens two or three times that is when you want to call the pastor or pick up a commentary do something say Lord what are you saying here God has provided for his church people with a particular gift for teaching It is extremely rare, perhaps it has never happened, that I've shared anything insightful with you that I did not find from someone else. The church has been given many people, though, who have certain (laughs) gifts, and tonight we will be looking at this somewhat puzzling parable. Why is it puzzling? It's in part that none of the characters in it are necessarily good people. Which makes it hard to identify, what is one of these referring to God? What's going on here? And then the main character is undeniably a bad person. And it seems on one level like Jesus is commending, saying be like this bad person. We're going to see, however, that there is something worth imitating in this unscrupulous steward. So let's give attention to the word beginning at verse 1. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I am removed from the management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant Can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time together in this. Heavenly Father, we ask for the gift of your Holy Spirit to be at work among us this evening. Please guide us to understand rightly what Jesus teaches us in this passage, please guard us from error. And we ask that you would please incline us not only to understand but to live according to these things because they are truly challenging to who we were apart from your spirit, but they hold in them much joy as you call us into who we are becoming in Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. God's people pray. Amen. Previously, we learned that the parables are stories designed by the Lord both to hide and to reveal spiritual truths about His heavenly kingdom. They hide those truths from those who are not seeking, and they reveal those truths in often more memorable, understandable ways to those who, through faith, by the work of the Holy Spirit, are seeking the kingdom. And in this parable in particular, there's the danger of having the lesson hidden by the fact of the main character's sinfulness. It's very important that as we approach this parable, we are attentive to what Jesus is and is not commending. To be very clear, Jesus is not commending this man's motives This man is clearly oriented only to this life. He is not thinking about accountability to the Lord. He is driven by his laziness more than a desire to do anyone real good. And so Jesus is not commending this man's motives, nor is he commending this man's actions. This man has stolen and he cloaks it in a veneer of generosity. He is making donations out of other people's property that is sin. So this man is a scoundrel. Jesus is not commending that, but Jesus is clearly commending something. He is telling his disciples to imitate some aspect of this man. And so I wonder if already at this point you have some idea of what that is. It's captured in verse 8. Hear what Jesus says again. The sons of this world, that is the people whose God is this world, they live for this one life, not for the age to come. The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. They know how to treat people out in the world in order to make this one life better for themselves. And in this, Jesus is commending shrewdness. Shrewdness. Now, do you know what shrewdness is? well enough to become more shrewd. That's somewhat the question of this evening. Shrewdness is an attribute, a characteristic, that can be used for good or for evil. Of itself, it's neither. But what is shrewdness? Shrewdness is to have strong powers of judgment and perception and the ability to be decisive. Think of a person who walks into a room and they can size up the situation. Maybe they see that the cards are against them, but they think, how can I turn this towards a particular end? And then they don't wait. They take steps to make that happen. That person is shrewd. And they can be shrewd for good, or they can be shrewd for evil. So shrewdness is strong powers of judgment, perception, decisiveness. And the Lord, through this parable, is calling us as children of the age to come, sons of the kingdom, to become more shrewd stewards of the resources entrusted to us by our heavenly master. And so the things that drive us, our motives will be, must be different. And also our actions in many respects will be different. But we should not be less shrewd than the sons of this age. God helping us, we will become more shrewd Than the people of this age certainly more shrewd than we were coming in this evening god help us in that way now as we consider this parable we're going to look at it under three main headings because there are at least three main lessons that we can imitate three ways that we can learn from the shrewdness of this unscrupulous steward it is important even at the outset to remember that the lord in his providence does teach us often through unbelievers We have to be careful how we learn from them. But Christ would not have been able to say this had he not noticed it as well. And so we look around. What can we learn? And start by looking at the situation in verse 2. Return to the situation. Understand what's going on. The master, the rich man, says to his servant, Turn in your account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Now when he says turn in your account, he means several things. He's talking about the records that show all of the in and out of the money. Where is this going? Were you faithful? Clearly, he has his concerns. This man has been embezzling, taking for himself, skimming off the top. And he's also talking about all of the tools and the materials related to the management. At this time, there would have been, for instance, a seal that you could impress into clay, signifying this is an official document. All of that would have been turned over. Now, how does the servant respond? How does he respond to the situation of realizing he's about to be out on the street? His income, gone. His reputation, ruined. No more work of this kind for him. Who is going to trust him? And evidently, he's working for someone very wealthy. And so whatever job he's going to have after this, he's going to be going to the very bottom. How does he respond? His shrewdness is seen first in this, our first main heading, the fact that he frankly faces the future. Now, he does it in the wrong way, but he is frank about it. He realistically sizes up what is likely to happen if he doesn't take action immediately. Now, what could he have done? He could have done what many people do when faced with terrible news. He could have entertained some kind of unrealistic, fanciful hopes. could have told himself, no, the master won't really do that to me. Yes, he's going to. You're ruined. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, Maybe I'll like a change of pace. I'll like digging. That will be a good change of pace for me. But don't many people do that? They live in denial of very obvious facts about the future. But look at verse 3. He said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. He owns his weakness. I'm not strong enough to dig. I've never lifted anything heavier than a pin in my life. And I am ashamed to beg. I don't want anybody to see me doing that. I've gotten used to seeming like something in the world. A shrewd person reckons frankly and realistically with what is lying in the future. Because if you don't do that, you cannot plan for it. You can't change your plans if you don't have a clear sense of what's on the horizon. Foolish people depict the future, they draw it as a caricature, as a cartoon. Maybe you've been to a theme park and there's the person inevitably who will draw a caricature of you. I have never once seen them do it in a way that makes you look ugly. Cartoonish? Yes. But they're being paid and they will make you a a cartoon version of yourself, and they'll make you extra cute. Isn't it the case that the foolish person does that with their own future? They draw the future as a cartoon, romantically depicting that everything will be better. The shrewd person, I'm not saying to go in the total opposite way and assume the worst if there are good things for us, and certainly as believers there are. But the shrewd person deals realistically. They seek as much as they can to draw a realistic projection and anticipation of how things are going to be later. They try to think, what are the trajectories of the course that I'm on? Because if you do that, you can't even change. You're locked in. You're desperate. You're in despair. Worldly people, according to Jesus, are often more shrewd in this way. They are more frank about their future on earth than believers are about glory. They're more frank about it. They deal very plainly with some of the realities of this life. They ask themselves questions that maybe you yourself avoid about this life. What will it be like if you reach your 30s or 40s? And I say this to the younger ones here. What will it be like if you reach your 30s or 40s, which seems so far away to you now, and it's not. Sadly, it is not. You're almost 40. I say that because I'm almost 40 and I feel like I was 15 yesterday. It's coming. What will happen if you reach your 30s and your 40s and you don't have marketable skills? And you don't have the ability to earn a livelihood that can care for a family. And so you put off and put off and put off many things. What will happen if you don't set aside for possibly 25 years after you're retiring? you don't set aside what will happen if you don't plan in terms of diet and discipline yourself in terms of exercise and then you pass beyond 65 years old or maybe much younger than that and you find that your body is simply not what it otherwise might have been people in the world are often very mindful of those things even more mindful of those things than believers are in dealing very frankly with what is beyond the horizon of this life now I want to be very clear about what I'm talking about. On the one hand, there will be those who were sons of the kingdom in an outward sense. Remember the Jews that Jesus says were not believers. He calls them sons of the kingdom. The sons of the kingdom will be cast out while many of the Gentiles will be brought in to sit with Abraham. So sons of the kingdom simply means professing believers here. Some of them will discover that they were not even genuine believers because they did not face the reality of their lack of faith. Look at me at verse 11. We are not saved by our stewardship, but it certainly is indicative of certain things. Verse 11, Jesus says, if you've not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money as a christian you look at money you say the money is going to serve god i am not going to serve the money and god in his kindness grants that a certain portion goes to our own well-being just like it was not wrong for this steward to have an income that wasn't wrong and you have obligations within your home immediately, The point and long-term obligations. The point is not here, you know, sow a uh, seed of faith, send your entire paycheck to the church. That's not what Jesus is getting at. It's asking the question, does the money control me, or does God own me? Is he going to determine? And we will battle with that. But if there's no battle in you, you are not a believer, or certainly you have no credibility to claim to be. There must be a battle, and one where over time, there's growth others will be saved and yet they are going to discover that they have relatively little to show for it in the age to come first corinthians chapter 3 verse 15 i don't ask that you turn there it's a very brief passage but if you want to return to it to study first corinthians 3 verse 15 the apostle says in that day concerning the final judgment each person's work will become manifest For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Now he's speaking in a metaphor. He's speaking of the way that you can take certain kinds of materials, pass them through a crucible. Some of them will be consumed. Others of them can withstand the fire. God's scrutiny will be applied to your entire earthly life. And what does it say? It then says in verse 15, 14. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do not mistake me. All believers, according to scripture, everyone who knows Jesus Christ, will experience glory. And it will be Wonderful beyond anything that we have experienced in this life. Yet we cannot delude ourselves then to suppose that everyone will experience glory in the same way. Or that the same degree of honor or responsibility will be confirmed to each. The details of that are for a different sermon. Study it yourself. Jesus is not kidding when he says, store up for yourselves heavenly treasure. That's not just some kind of platitude. He says, store up, because there will be differences. None will be dissatisfied, but that does not mean that everyone will have the same fullness of delight in the things that are given to them. I don't profess to know exactly what that means, though, as a hint to it, think through what kinds of things will satisfy you then, when you are fully in tune with the Holy Spirit. Then... The kinds of things that I trust will most satisfy believers will be satisfaction in serving the Lord. Maybe it means you'll have more ways that you serve him. I don't know the full extent, but there is definitely a difference. Nor can we allow ourselves the excuse of saying that we have less to invest in the kingdom than others. Remember another parable of a man who buried the one talent he had, and then he's told to give it all back. You can't say, well, I don't don't invest in the future. I'm not worried about that because the Lord didn't give me very much. You might be at an advantage. Remember the widow who gave a single coin. And Jesus says she gave more than everybody because that was all she had. In a sense, you may be at an advantage. If you have little right now, the little you have, use it for the kingdom. Think of the burden that lies on those whom the Lord has entrusted much in material things with. And recognize that the Lord will not judge according to the sum total as we see it, but the faithfulness, the degree of faithfulness. And so no one is being put at a disadvantage relative to their economic prosperity. Everyone has the opportunity for great blessings in the age to come. The shrewd person is very frank as they face that future. And that's the first main idea here, the first way that we learn. Deal frankly with the future. Then there's a second way that we learn from this shrewd person. And this is shown in verse 1. Verse 1, he asks a question. What shall I do? Shrewdness is seen in pondering how to proceed. It's seen in asking yourself, not rhetorically, but really, what shall I do then? This is the circumstance I'm in. What can I do about it? Can anything be done to, humanly speaking, have a different outcome than what I am looking at? He is not asking this rhetorically. The man in the parable bends his whole energy, his whole mind to answering this question. What am I going to do? Because he realizes if I don't, it's on me. And the reason why we often push it off is we tell ourselves we've got plenty of time. This man at least has the advantage he knows that week or that day He's in big trouble. But we tell ourselves we have plenty of time, plenty of time. And we don't immediately think through what can be done. Often, according to Jesus, the sons of this age are much more devoted in thinking through what they can do to improve their future. They can't guarantee it, but they can take steps. Have you not known people who are unbelievers who gave an extraordinary amount of time to learning the... the tiny little differences between different investment vehicles. And they want to know, you know, they're tracking the market, they want to get absolute most return on their investment. People who have no time for physical exercise, the finger often points at me, and yet they pour huge, say, cryptocurrency. I spoke with a person and they told me that they spent like 14 hours one week just learning about cryptocurrency, and yet they could not find time to balance And yet there's a devotedness. They tell themselves, I'm thinking about the future. I'm trying to take care of it. We shouldn't model their motives and all of their actions, but we can certainly learn from the shrewdness. Should we not be more diligent to ponder what can be done to improve glory, if you can speak that way? How might I store up treasure for the kingdom? By contrast, Christians are often less thoughtful about that They don't ruminate long enough, hard enough about what can be done. What shall I do? Verse one. So I want to put it to you as a question. As a habit of life, do you take each day as it comes or do you rise early or think the day before about what it might be and then actually plan for it? Do you assume that the crumbs that fall in the path are all that there was to gather of what the Lord might have for you? How intentional are you? Most of Christian health and well-being is sanctified intentionality. It is. You won't see somebody go very far in their growth and their maturity who's just ambling by. Letting Jesus lead them, and the reality is they aren't doing the things Jesus said. He leads them through calling them to act. And before you can act, you have to think. You have to plan. You have to ask questions. What can be done? Our first president, George Washington, is, of course, most remembered for being a general and a president. Before that, though, he really made his fortune off of being a land surveyor there's not a lot of money in surveying land of itself but at that time part of why he you know he learned the tools of surveying early on in a previous military career then he became a land surveyor in part because they were then paying him to go out and to see all the areas that perhaps he might be able to buy up and he would try to think which are the areas that will have most value to farmers soon And he would take what little money he had and he would buy another piece of land and buy another piece of land just outside the area people were moving into and then go out further and buy more. So he was being a visionary about where are people likely to build farms. Should not believers be at least so concerned to be visionary? Where is the harvest going to be? What can I do to develop for the future God's kingdom? It's in his hands ultimately But he delights to see his servants go out and be stewards. And he calls us then to think through it. And so the question is, what shall I do? The third and final way that we glean from this steward is to recognize how his shrewdness is seen in in how he takes decisive action. He doesn't wait, he acts. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not telling you, skip that first step, plan But once you have planned, once you have done your homework for the day, for the month, for the year, for the decade, and each will have different homework, once you have done that, you have to act. If you don't act, it won't happen. It just stays in the dream phase, the idea phase. Look at me at verse 4. He says to himself, I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, and clearly he didn't have a house of his own. He's living with his master. So, and you don't get any sense of a pause. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he says to the first, how much do you owe the master? And he says, a hundred measures of oil. And he strikes it down. And then And He says, in fact, sit down quickly. Sit down quickly. It would be more comical if it were less diabolical. Because this man is transferring the wealth of his master who for all we know got it justly to all these other people and yet he's doing it very efficiently. Why is he doing it? Because he knows he doesn't have a moment to lose. If he loses that seal, if he loses the records that make it seem legitimate so that these people perhaps in court can say, hey, it was all official, that guy was a representative. You know, for all we know, the master's making it up, going back on his word now. He has to act now. And that's horrible. But on the other hand, Jesus has learned from his shrewdness. Is it not true that many Christians fall far short of that kind of decisiveness, that industriousness? Again, think of the way that the sons of this world are often excellent in their decisiveness. From a young age, and I... I if I can say it without sin, I envy those who, right off the bat, said less about what do I love to do?" and more about "What am I perhaps gifted at?" They went immediately into pursuing a vocation or to college. And they were thinking about the future, and then they put their nose to the grindstone for years so that they might stand out. And they don't think so much, am I tired right now? Or, oh, my friends are doing this. Those people in all likelihood that you call your friends when you're in college, you're not going to know them in 15 years. Almost any of them. And so you are selling your future for a paltry present, and you miss out on the things that the Lord would give to you to make you more of a steward. The Lord can work extremely graciously, and I am one of those people. I have a very different vocation now than I did. But that's a matter of grace. You don't try to imitate the exception. You don't imitate the exception. You follow the path that it gives. People in the world, they put their fortunes on the line for business ventures all the time. They are decisive. They say, I I believe in this. I can do it. It doesn't always work out. But you respect the decisiveness or the willingness to postpone pleasure right now in terms of what they might buy, what what they might do in order to put away for retirement or for their children's education. Christians could learn a lot from that too. But here Jesus is saying that they are often more concerned for this world than we are to store up for the age to come and to actually act on it. We're like the person in the other parable. Jesus tells another parable of a man who builds great big barns and fills them up and says, I have much for many years. Do you remember what happens that very night? He dies. And in the parable, it's followed with the words, fool. Because he didn't think through the possibility that all of that was for nothing. And so he had not invested in those things which matter. Again, to be clear, Jesus is not in light of the whole counsel of scripture telling Christians that they should just go out and throw their money wildly at things that will go nowhere. And there's that temptation. We experience it all the time. When we see total strangers asking for economic means, you have to ask yourself, is this the best way? Will this be the most effective? But on the other hand, you can say, well, because I don't want to hurt them by giving, I'll give later. And you never get around to giving anything. And have we not all been guilty of that? The Lord calls us to be shrewd by being decisive, to take action, not to wait until we have the time and the energy that will never never come. And so he calls us to be decisive as stewards of the kingdom. Now, as we come to a conclusion here, we've gotten some sense of the kind of shrewdness he's calling you to. The Lord is calling you as a steward of the kingdom. And if you're a believer, you are a steward, and things are entrusted to you. He's calling you deal frankly with your future. And I want to address the younger ones here again. You will have to fight, fight, fight against a a kind of forgetfulness of the facts that we're talking about here that will encroach upon you as you move from your youthful relative poverty into having stuff. When you're young, it's so much easier to look down on those who have some stuff and say, Well, if I had it, I'd be much more generous. Until you have things. And what you have to strive for when you're young is to believe that Christ is not deceiving you when he says, It is better to give than to receive. Not, it's like it's better. It is better to give than to receive. What we need then to think is how we will apply ourselves to the question, what can we do? What can we do, and what steps do we need to take? What is the action we're going to take? So what remains for us is to reflect on the advice Jesus gives in verse 9. And this is perhaps the most puzzling part of it. Jesus says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. There are a number of things that you need to grasp here. One, what he means by make friends. Remember, the man in the parable uses the money of someone else to make friends for himself so that he can come live with them. So that he can come live with them. He doesn't have a house of his own. He wants to live with people who will like him. They're not going to really like him. They just like that he got uh, got them a deal. But he's trying to make friends with whom he will dwell. But eventually, their money will fail too, whether it just runs out or they all die. They can't take it with them. Jesus says, make friends for yourselves who ultimately will receive you into eternal dwellings. He's talking about believers, people with whom you will share the age to come. What does he mean when he says make friends by means of unrighteous wealth. He's certainly not telling them to sin. He's speaking to his disciples. What does he mean by unrighteous wealth? In the verses a little bit lower that we saw, verses 11 and 12, he clearly states that the unrighteous wealth is the money of this world versus the true riches that God gives that are spiritual. Why does he call it unrighteous? This is important. Jesus doesn't call the wealth unrighteous because it's Evil in itself. Money is just stuff. People are good and evil. Money is just stuff. But he calls it unrighteous wealth to alert you, to give you an appropriate suspicion of the effect that it tends to have on us. Much money is rarely gotten without defiling your conscience. Most of us can speak to that. That even if you have a job that's above board, aspects of the job, it's almost impossible to navigate keeping a clean conscience while fulfilling your job. Who has ever worked in sales? Who has ever had a job where they expect you to make the customer feel things were going the right way when they were not? To arrive at any amount of wealth is always fraught with peril. And then on top of that, keeping it, retaining it, that involves a lot of temptation too. The more you have, the more tendency it has to get you. The wealth has you. That's a temptation. And then at last, it, according to Jesus, will fail. You can't take it with you. What then do you do with it? Jesus says, make friends for yourself who will receive you. Here it might be easiest to give you simply a few examples. When I was 18 years old, I was invited, this was in between semesters of Bible college, I was invited to do an internship over summer, on Catalina Island to be a kind of assistant to the youth pastor. And it was not going to be immediately paid. They told me that they would provide food and a place to sleep, and that if it went well through the whole summer, then at the end, they would pay for my ticket to Australia, where I was going to be for the next six months of college, and assisting with a church plant in Australia. They said, yeah, we'll pay for your ticket, we'll pay for your time there and we'll give you pocket money the reason they set it up that way they weren't trying to be cruel to me they set it up that way because they knew there was a certain donor who tended to make a very large it had never failed for over 20 years that donor made a large gift at a set time and they were waiting until that gift and then they were going from that to compensate me and then about a week before I needed to buy my airline ticket towards the end of this they said hey we're really sorry the donor said something has gone wrong with their business We don't have the money. And my thought was, okay, Lord, you're calling me to stay in California. This is just what we're going to do. Within a day or two, I did pray, Lord, if you want to provide some other way. I don't know how much faith, but if there was even a grain like a mustard seed, perhaps the Lord responded. But within two or three days, it was probably less than that. The pastor told me there was a man in the church who wanted to go for a walk with me. I had never met him and I've never seen him since. We took a walk around Avalon, the city on Catalina. He just asked me questions about myself, what my goals were, how I wanted to serve the Lord. And at the very end of the conversation, and I had no idea who he was. I thought this was like a ministry project for me, somebody I was being tested to like try to give counsel to a man who's 45 or 50. And at the very end of it, he says simply, I would like to pay for everything that you need. And I didn't know where he was getting the money. He didn't look like he had money. He just said, I would like to, and I'd like you to receive it from the Lord, and I want you you to use it unto the Lord. Within 24 hours, I'd bought an airplane ticket. He just gave me cash. I put it in the bank. Everything was taken care of, and in my rut, you know, I took off. I don't think I ever spoke to him again because in just a few months, he passed away. I did not know that he, so it turns out he had cancer. And in his, he had no wife, she had already passed. I don't think he had kids, or maybe they were provided for. But in that time, the Lord graced him with a window where he thought, okay, I see it coming, what can I do? And he could have done what many people in the world do, they provide for this life, and they just burn it on frivolity. You know, I'm going to see all the, I'm going to go see the Taj Mahal. I'm going to see it, which in themselves, I'm not saying all those things are horrible, but their thoughts are only about this age. This man thought, I have a limited amount of time to just dump money in the investment chamber, but of the spiritual one. And what he wanted was that when we would meet in glory, we would receive one another forever. And I can tell you, whenever I think of that man, I think, I can't wait to embrace him. I can't wait to, that man had had an influence on my life. And I, in turn, had some, I hope, influence on the people there. And you, in turn, make for yourselves friends, everlasting friends, as you meaningfully, cautiously, wisely invest the goods of this age, whether it's your time, your treasures, your talents, into those who will come to faith. And the Lord receives that. That will give you more joy than all those things that presently I find myself distracted by. There was a time when I was broke and now I'm not totally broke. And now I can, you know, back then it was easy to focus on the spiritual thing. The more you have, the more distracted you are and you have to say, this will not last forever. Enjoy some things. There's a place for that. Read Ecclesiastes 12. But don't forget what will bring true joy. Let's close with these two verses. Hebrews 13, verse 16 here, it says, Hebrews thirteen sixteen, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. In Matthew 25, verse 40, Jesus says, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. The shrewdest servants of the kingdom don't store up heavenly treasure because they think that there's going to be literal gold. The streets are paved with gold. That's not what's going to satisfy us. It's because they desire to receive from Christ a resounding well done. We all fall short, but relatively speaking, some will do weller. The Lord is calling you, live your life that way and reap the joy that will come. Let's ask him to help us even now. Heavenly Father, it's a heavy thing to think about these issues because as your word reveals, money, as much as it is respectable, and we would all prefer not to show that it often controls us, it, it does have long tentacles. We pray, Lord, that you would please free us from the temptation to see ourselves as masters and not as stewards. Father, please increase our faith so that we do not feel like we're throwing away or missing out when we use what you've stewarded to us for the purposes of blessing others in Christ's name, for sending forth those who will declare the word, for in every way caring for one another and meeting one another's needs. We ask that you would please fill us with the spirit of Christ, which makes this easy. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen.